I'll open with prayer. Heavenly Father, as we finish up our discussion of inerrancy today, we pray that you would help us to understand what the Bible is and what it does more fully and more deeply. Uh, And we ask that you would be with us, uh, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So, we're finishing up 3.2, and then we will do uh, 3.3 today as well and, and finish it up. So, yesterday we talked about two guys who criticized inerrancy. The first one was Peter Enns. Yes? What's today's name? 31st. Uh, we talked about Peter Enns. And Peter Enns, what does he think about inerrancy? What was that quote I gave you? Uh, inerrancy is not a thing the Bible does. Yeah, it's not a thing the Bible does. Uh, for Peter Enns, the Bible is inspired, but not in the way that we would typically think about inspiration. Uh, for Peter ends, the Bible is inspired in the sense that people either did or thought they had experiences of God. Because they believed they experienced God, they wrote down what they thought happened, some of them accurately, some of them maybe less than accurately. Uh, the scriptures are a record of several people from one ancient nation called Israel. <laughs> who believed that they experienced God, and they wrote down to try to record that experience and to process through that experience and explain what happened. Some of them maybe really did experience God. Some of them maybe thought they did, but didn't. Some of them maybe recorded their experience accurately. Some of them maybe recorded their experience inaccurately. This is Peter Enns talking. Um, And Enns will try to argue that the Bible presents... Uh, very diverse pictures of God. He will argue that those pictures of God do not fit together very well. And he will argue that the Bible is more about diversity of opinion than it is about unity of opinion. And the beauty of scripture for Peter Enns is that you get to read these documents where people explain their experience of God and maybe it helps you experience God. And then you get to add your voice to the discussion and conversation. So that was one person who criticized inerrancy. Uh, The second one was the Australian Michael Bird. Anybody go home and listen to Michael Bird talk? Nobody did. Um, Very, very funny. Uh, I don't know. That man's voice just really cracks me up. Uh, So anyways, Michael Bird, the Australian, though, um, he also criticizes inerrancy and He questions whether it is a very helpful term. Uh, His idea about the truthfulness of the Bible basically makes him an inerrantist. He basically holds the idea that the Bible is without error. However, he doesn't really like that vocabulary word very much. Um, And one of the reasons for that is he thinks that a hard uh, definition of inerrancy usually moves uh, beyond the realm of saying the Bible is truthful and really starts impacting our interpretation of Scripture. Um, And I gave you an example of this from the book of Joshua yesterday, where in Joshua 6 through 8, I'm going to abbreviate that JS, Joshua 6 through 8, Israel fights against two regions, Uh, The first is Jericho, the city of Jericho. And um, you guys know in the ancient world, you have like a city, but then you're going to have outside of the city like farmlands. There will be like 
little maybe communities outside of the city. So fight against Jericho and the surrounding areas, and then they also fight against Ai. Uh, and they uh, eventually have victory over the, uh, they eventually have victory over these two cities and regions. And the way that the scriptures make it sound is, especially in the story of Jericho, but then I also read to you the story of Ai, what do they do to the inhabitants of these places? Yeah, how many people? Yeah, slaughter everyone. And everyone means... Everyone? Yeah, on, on at least a base reading, everyone. Remember Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 5, that Robert read yesterday. Uh, you know, uh, great passage for quiet time, right? Uh, when you go into the land, show them no mercy and kill everyone, right? Uh, looks like in Joshua 6 through 8, they've obeyed that commandment. But then Joshua 8, 30 through 35, it talks about the people of Israel and all the what that traveled along with them. Yeah, the sojourners or foreigners. Where did those people come from? It's kind of interesting that before they come into the land of Canaan, they don't really have anyone that would fall into that category going with them. So, uh, where do those sojourners and foreigners come from, we might ask? It's not just Rahab and her family that's mentioned, it's many sojourners and foreigners. Um, On top of that as well, uh, whenever we get a little bit further in, uh, you know, in, in Joshua 6, we see that Rahab the Gentile gets saved. There are four cities in the land of Gibeah that get saved. And then in Joshua 11, uh, we read yesterday Joshua 11 uh, verses 1 through 15, where Joshua fights against King Yavin of Hazor. And what do they do to Hazor? What do they do to the people of Hazor? Yeah, this is very adamant that they killed men, women, children, everyone. No one was left who breathed in Hazor, the text said. Um, They slaughter everyone. But then within, like, you know, just a couple of decades, Judges 4, 1 through 3, Deborah is the judge. And guess who is powerful enough to not just fight against Israel, but to conquer Israel? Yavin and Hazor. And so I raised the question yesterday of, you know, how do we make sense of all of this? Yeah. Probably not. Remember, um, like in, uh, in, in, in the land of the Philistines, Uh, There are multiple kings who are king over the Philistines named Abimelech, which means my father is king. So that is a a name that gets passed down and passed down from generation to generation. Yavin is probably the same way. Most Israel is really unique in that they don't have a name that is attached to a dynasty like that. Like every king of Israel has a different name. Some of them are named after an earlier king, but for the most part, they all have different names. That's really unique in the ancient world. What is What name does every king of Egypt go by? Pharaoh. Every king of the Philistines in scripture goes by Abimelech, right? It's not the same guy every time, 
But um, one of the things that you've got to understand about that is in most of the religions surrounding Israel, uh, what is the king considered? A god. And one of the ways that you try to show that the king is a god or, or that he is eternal is as a new king comes, he takes the old name. And the idea is the father is kind of reincarnated in the son. So they share the same name to try to show, like, this is our God. This is an everlasting one. It's two different bodies, but you kind of have this idea that the father died, and now his spirit is kind of passed into the son or something like that. Um, so that's why uh, Yavin, you know, has, uh, has the same name. It's not the same guy, more than likely, um, but, but that's what's going on. But I, I, I asked the question, you know, how do we make sense of this? Um, A little bit later in Joshua 11 as well, it talks about how um, all the Canaanites, um, what is the way that the Canaanites could escape the destruction in Joshua, by the way? Chapter 11. Joshua. All right, how could, how could people in Canaan escape the judgment that Joshua was bringing? Yeah, do what Rahab did. Repent, you know, do that sort of thing. All the Canaanites know that Israel's God has fought against them. So chapter 11 really makes a point that all the Canaanites uh, had a chance to be saved. And it kind of raises the question, you know, was Rahab the only one who did? I would say no. It looks like this is something that happens a little bit more often. But, you know, here we have kind of this weird thing. Okay, everyone was slaughtered, but then there's a bunch of sojourners and foreigners. Everyone was slaughtered, but within 20 years, the city is powerful and strong again as a military. Um, And what I raised was that the book of Joshua uses what type of language whenever it talks about Israel's warfare? Hyperbolic. I think, I think it uses hyperbolic language. Um, I, I think this is a place where it does that. Earlier in this class, I had mentioned the Bible uses hyperbole. Well, here's an example of a place where I think that happens. And one of the reasons that I think that is because I mentioned yesterday, right as we were closing, that uh, other nations from around Israel at this exact same point in history do what? Yeah, use hyperbolic language to talk about their warfare. Egypt has this big pillar that talks about the great deeds of Egypt. And it says, we destroyed Israel and there is no children left to Jacob. And then the very next sentence is, and this is how many we enslaved and this is how many we sent into exile. How are you supposed to understand that? Oh, the guy chiseling the pillar just made like this really massive mistake and that it was set in stone, so can't go back and do it. Is that likely? No. Why does he say Israel was totally destroyed and there's no children left for them? By the way, this is how many, you know, didn't die. Yeah, how thoroughly Egypt defeated them, something like that. The Hittites are one of the seven Canaanite nations that Israel defeats. And Mark Wheaton, uh, Mark Wheaton has a um, journal article called Poetry and War Among the Hittites that talks about how Hittite documents that we have uh, do the exact same thing, use the exact same type of language. 
So, you know, I would raise the question, is this whole slaughter everyone, kill every man, woman, child, everything that breathes, is that hyperbolic, non-literal language? And, and I would say yes. Yes? You keep saying you think that this is an example of what Bird will be criticizing with inerrancy because um, a lot of people who hold to inerrancy, this view that I'm presenting is out of bounds for them. Okay? I hold to inerrancy and I'm comfortable with this position on Joshua. But for a lot of people who hold to inerrancy, this would be out of bounds for them because they would try to criticize me by saying, but it says this. And it says this. Everyone died, everyone died. You know, they, they would point at that and would say, if you go the route that, that I'm going with this argument, um, this is running pretty close to saying that this text was wrong and this text was wrong. Now, I don't think that's true. I don't think that me saying that is, is saying that the Bible is committing an error in those places. I think that we're recognizing that there's non-literal language that's being used. Right? But a lot of people... Uh, would look at my hyperbolic interpretation of Joshua and would say that comes way too close to saying that Joshua commits a, a an error because you know it says everyone died, everyone died, and then I'm coming along and saying I, I don't think that should be taken literally. Right? So Michael Bird, this would be an example of what Bird says whenever he says inerrancy can sometimes limit interpretation. I think this is the right interpretation of Joshua. I think this is true. And I, I think that this is pretty well documented, that this is just how ancient people talked about warfare. And is Joshua an ancient book? Yeah. yeah. And two nations right around Joshua from the same point in history use hyperbolic language to talk about warfare. So is it surprising that Joshua does? Is Joshua trying to mislead us? No. No. He's using a literary convention that was popular in his day to make a point for his original readers. And we, as 21st century readers, have to recognize this is an ancient book written to an ancient people in an ancient language in a way that ancients would understand. We've got to get into their shoes and fill this out. So Michael Bird would say uh, inerrancy can sometimes carry some baggage with it. Sometimes it can limit interpretations like this because, oh, we're so scared of getting, okay, here is the statement, God makes an error in the scriptures. We don't want to, we don't ever want to get close to that. You know, um, he would say sometimes inerrancy can promote fear in interpretation. Sometimes inerrancy can limit interpretations such as this one. Uh, and so his solution is to scrap the word inerrancy. My solution would be have a better definition. Uh, that can account for the fact that the Bible is an ancient book that does things that ancient documents do, which is why we spent the last couple weeks uh, in class lectures looking at all of these different phenomena we find in Scripture, trying to figure out what the Bible is and what it does. Question? What would you call the Bible? Infallible. That's a little bit of a softer word. Remember, they're pretty... The definition of inerrancy and infallibility that I gave you a few lessons ago are pretty close, um, but he thinks that the word infallibility just has some a little bit less baggage attached to it. So, 
like I said, bird winds up in a place pretty close to where I line up. Um, some people have expressed a little bit of frustration with bird and said you're an inerrantist. You just don't want to use the label. And I think that's pretty true. All right. So let's do 3.3. This is pretty short. It's pretty much a summary of what we've been going over. We're going to call it robust inerrancy because I like that word. That's a fun word to say. Robust inerrancy. Robust. Strong, right? A strong definition of inerrancy. One that can account for the different things that we've seen. We're going to define biblical inerrancy as the idea that the Bible contains no errors in what it attempts to communicate. The Bible contains no errors in what it attempts to communicate. Does the Bible attempt to communicate history to us? Yes. All right, the Bible gives us historical facts. But is the Bible primarily a history book? Primarily, it's a what book? A theology book. So, the, whenever the Bible makes a historical claim, inerrancy would say the historical claim is true. But the historical claim is never the main point. The main point is what does this teach about God? What does it reveal about God? So inerrancy is the idea that the Bible contains no errors in what it attempts to communicate. The truths that it tries to communicate are going to be true. Yes? I've repeated it three times and it should be in your notes already. So... Uh, Fleshing this out a little bit more fully, Scripture is consistent. It's unified. And as God's word, we should expect this because God is true, he's faithful, and he's a God of order, not of chaos, according to 1 Corinthians 14.33. God is a God of order, not of chaos. So we should expect the Bible to have a sense of consistency and unity because God is true, he's faithful, uh, he's the one who is inspiring this. So scripture is consistent and unified, but scripture is also diverse in an extent. And we should expect this because God's word is going to reflect God's character and God is creative and he accommodates down to us and he loves beauty. He loves diversity. Not everything in the world looks the same. He, he loves diversity. So in scripture, we find a consistent unified message, but that consistent unified message, we could say, is spoken and given to us in a diverse way. Different biblical authors write in different genres. They write different types of literature with different styles, different vocabulary words, all right? But there's one overall consistent message and theme. It's told in a diverse way, though. We have to be willing to accept, as we think about inerrancy, that the Bible has different standards than what we often have in its writing. It has different literary conventions, different rules than the English rules that we have today. 
uses figures of speech, etc. All these things that we have gone over. And, and, it, and it maybe looks a little bit different than if we closed our eyes and tried to picture what a perfect book would be like. The Bible is maybe a little bit different than that, but we should expect this. It's an ancient book that was originally written for an ancient people. So it can't be judged by modern standards. Okay. Um, I don't know if I've made this point yet, but we have to recognize that we stand distant from Scripture to an extent. Um, you guys have primarily grown up in church, Sunday school. You've gone, many of you have gone through uh, Bible classes here every year that you've been here. And it's a good thing that you start to have a familiarity and a closeness to the Bible. But that can be a blessing and it can also be a curse. Because sometimes, uh, this is an experience I have with my Old Testament students every year. Sometimes we think that we know a Bible story. And then we read it. And because we think we know it, we read it quickly, we don't pay attention to details, we gloss over certain things, and then we wind up missing really important points. All right? Uh, Here's an example of this, by the way. How many, uh, Noah takes animals onto the ark. Uh, How many of each animal? Wrong. He takes two of every unclean, but what of every, seven pairs of every clean. Right? That's a really important detail in the, in the text. And I asked my Old Testament kids this after they had read the story. And I said, how many of each animal? And they say, two. And I said, really? And they, they say, yeah. And I said, how many unclean animals? Two. How many clean animals? Two. Right? There's such a familiarity that we sometimes have with the story that we miss important details because we think we know it already. Or here's another one. Um, whenever God made promises to Noah that he would never flood the earth again, what sign did he give to, uh, you know, as a, as a symbol of those promises? What sign does he give? What bow? That's not what the text says. It's a bow. It's the exact same word for what an archer uses later in scripture. And that's really important. It is a rainbow, right? But the word that the scriptures actually use is bow. And the reason that this is so important is God does mention that he will judge the world again. He won't do it through a flood. And then he puts his bow, uh, here's the earth, he puts his bow up in the sky. um, And his bow throughout the Old Testament is a symbol of judgment. It's a symbol of God's wrath. In Lamentations, Jeremiah says, you shot me with the arrows of your wrath. And the book of Psalms uses the same language. If you look at a bow... The way this is, here's the earth, and then here's my rainbow that's only one color, okay? Um, But if you were to imagine pulling the strings back on that bow, what direction is it pointed? What direction is it pointed? You know, here would be your arrow. It's pointed up. And in the scriptures, what do we usually think about as being up? Yeah, the heavens. Um, by the way, uh, you know, you, you get in a, I don't, I almost said automobile. Okay, if you look at it, though, right, we know in science that it is, but if you look at it, the way that you see it, whenever you look at it, looks like this arch, right? So, if you think about it this way, it looks like the bow is pointed up towards heaven, not down towards the earth. So God says he will judge the world again, but we get this idea that the next time God's judgment and his wrath is displayed, 
Well, if the arrow was shot right here, it would be aimed at whom? At God himself. So somehow when God judges the world again on account of sin, somehow God himself will be the one who takes the hit. Help me with that. Yeah, the cross. Christ will take the sins of the world upon himself. God's wrath will be poured out on Christ, and he will die to make atonement for our sins. All right? But we read the text really fast because we feel familiar with it, and we see bow, and we just think rainbow, and we don't, we don't sometimes pause to think about details. So something that we have to recognize, one of the benefits of starting off with these weeks talking about the Bible and talking about how it's an ancient book, and how many times have I said that, like a million? But one of the things that we should get from it is that we have to recognize there is a certain distance between us and Scripture, meaning this. None of the stories in the Bible took place in Tennessee. They all took place halfway across the world, the Middle East. There's a geographical distance between us and them. People who live in different places have different cultures. They have different symbols a lot of times. Does it rain here pretty often? Yeah. You know how, you know how many times it rains a year in Israel in a, in a typical year? Two. Good job. Yeah, only like two times. So if one of those rains doesn't happen, what's going to happen to all the food? None. This is why there's famines all the time in the Old Testament, right? What? So there, you know, there's um, rain is going to take on a symbolic meaning for them that wouldn't necessarily always make sense to us. Rain is a really common thing for us happens all the time not super important for them it is all right there's a geographical distance that we have to account for there's a time difference the new testament was written 2,000 years ago and the old testament was written you know some of it 4,000 years ago or or more 5,000 years ago something like that so there's a time difference there's a language difference not only greek and hebrew to english but there's also just like those rules of language that they have are very different from the rules of language we have. And so there is a a distance between us and the scriptures that we have to be able to account for. We have to start to try to see it as the unique ancient book that it is. It's good to be familiar with it. It's good to know those stories well, but it's also good to give fresh readings where we recognize this is a, for us, this is an odd book. Right? We have to pay it a little bit more attention than we would just like a random novel that we read for English class because there is this distance between us and it. Okay. So, um, let me make one more point before we move on from the doctrine of Scripture. Um, so far in this course, I've presented what many people... Uh, allege are like contradictions or errors in the Bible. And I've tried to show that those are oftentimes uh, not very valid. There are others that we'll bring up as we go throughout the semester where critics or skeptics will bring certain points up that we'll just have to talk about and deal with as we come to them. Um, But I want to just make a little bit of an appeal. Maybe as we were going through some of those apparent contradictions, you thought to yourself, hmm, 
I wonder if that's really right. I wonder if that really works to try to solve it that way. Um, I'll say this. There are critics and skeptics of the Bible who are very smart people who are worth listening to because they're going to bring things up that we need to deal with and we need to learn from. All right? There, there are those people out there who are critical or skeptical of the Bible, and the things that they bring up are thoughtful, and they're things that we need to answer and deal with. There are also critics of the Bible out there who are lazy. There are critics of the Bible out there who are lazy and who just want to find something to critique. Um, and so they're going to ignore at times the type of language that the scriptures use. They're going to ignore at times that it's an ancient document that has different rules than the rules that we have in our writing. Uh, they're going to oftentimes ignore the purpose or the meaning of a text, take it in an overly literal sense or something like that. Um, and what I would say, if you're somebody who is kind of in that boat, a critic in that way, if you're sitting through this class, maybe you're not a believer and you're, you're, you're a critic who is just trying to look for and find something, what I would say is you should give the book the benefit of the doubt for a minute. The authors of the Bible, even if you deny that they're inspired, it's really hard to deny that they're intelligent. They're not dumb. They were smart people. So instead of jumping on it and saying, well, that's wrong, that's an error, I'm just going to move on from this book, a better question to ask right off the bat is, why might this be here? Why might Matthew change Micah around? Why might Omri get skipped over in the book of Kings? Why might this thing be here? And whenever you start asking that question and slowing down and giving it a, t a little bit of time and giving a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, it often leads to good places. It often leads to finding meaning in the text that you would have missed beforehand. So I would encourage you to do that. Um, I would also encourage you with this. I had a professor in college um, who gave a presentation one time on doubt. And it was very formative for me. It was a very good presentation. Uh, this was a professor that became a Christian later in life. Uh, and he is a very, very smart person. Um, in his master's degree, he wound up studying uh, quite a lot at Harvard and other Ivy League schools. He then got his PhD over across the lake in England. Um, you guys have heard that phrase before, across the lake, but it actually means like the entire Atlantic Ocean. Um, so British people use that a lot. So uh, anyways, it's kind of silly. But this professor gave a, a presentation on doubt, and he talked about two types of doubt. He talked about the first type, which he called honest doubt. And he said, honest doubt is a good thing. Honest doubt is a good thing. Um, honest doubt is this. You, you have heard, um, you know, something presented before and you think to yourself, I wonder if that's really true. It's not that you necessarily reject it. It's that you're willing to look at it more closely to see if it actually holds up. So an example of this recently for me, um, you guys have learned the story of the Exodus growing up, right? How many plagues in the Exodus? 10, right? Um, I recognized recently reading a, a scholar 
that the term plague does not really show up through that portion of Exodus very often. In fact, the different uh, miracles that are worked in Egypt are called signs and wonders, not plagues. And if you look at the text, there's not just ten things called signs and wonders. You know how many there are? Twelve. That's seven with my hands, but there's actually twelve that are called signs and wonders. So, my honest doubt for a minute. I've heard this whole ten plagues thing my entire life growing up. I wonder if that's actually the right way to read this text. Not that I did away with the ten plagues right off the bat, but I wanted to read the text and see, does that really hold up? And so I read the text, I study the text, I look at it to see if maybe this signs and wonders thing is a better way of doing it. And I'm starting to think it is, right? Honest doubt. I look at something that I believed that I held to, and I wondered, I wonder if that actually holds up. I called it into question. I called it into doubt. If you want to learn, you have to have some honest doubt. Again, that doesn't mean I'm going to be skeptical about everything. It doesn't mean I'm never going to believe anything. It doesn't mean I'm going to throw all my ideas away and start fresh. It just means that you look at something and you're willing to ask the question, I wonder if that's really true. I wonder if it really holds up. And then you investigate. Really, honest doubt could go by a different term. Curiosity. Doubt and curiosity are very closely linked. If you want to learn, you need to be curious. You need to be willing to call things into question, and you need to wonder. So my professor talked about that one. He said that one is ethical. That one is necessary if you want to be a learning person. And then he talked about a second type, which he called hipster doubt. You guys know what a hipster is? That's not a term that's really used a lot anymore. Olivia? Mm -hmm. It's not a term that's really getting used a lot anymore, Um, but a hipster, um, especially whenever I was your age, a hipster was this person who wanted to just like be super cool, but usually they were just weirdos, right? You know this. You guys know what I mean by hipster, right? Like they started doing the whole, like, I'm going to pretend that I live in Portland, even though I live in Dayton, Tennessee. So I'm going to wear like skinny jeans that are like way too skinny and, uh, you know, leather jacket type thing. And I'm going to grow a mustache and nothing else, just a mustache. And I'm going to drink fancy coffees and use big words about them and listen to music that no one's ever heard of and then make fun of them for it. Right. Uh, You've seen these people before, the hipsters, right? Um, I would, I, would, I would put this by a, a different name if we don't know what a hipster is. Um, I would call it lazy doubt. And this, or, or um, maybe you're trying to be cool. So cool doubt. Uh, this type of doubt is very different from the first one. Um, you want to stand out. You want, you want to be kind of cool. You want to be edgy. You guys know that term, edgy? You want to be kind of edgy. And so you, you start saying, yeah, I don't know about that, about you know, things that you used to believe. And you're not doing it because you're really curious or you're really doubting. You're doing it more as uh, you know, a vibe, basically. All right? Uh, you know, you, you, it's kind of this social type of doubt, right? Um, and really what's at the heart of it is you, you don't want to believe, so uh, you don't want to be held accountable to God and the scriptures. Um, 
So you, you, you call it into question. You start saying, oh, I'm kind of agnostic about this. And, and then you're free. You feel home free. Uh, you know, you, you call it into doubt, not because you've really done any sort of investigation to figure out what's going on there. You call it into doubt just to be cool, to be edgy, to kind of be, you know, loose, free. Um, if you want to do that type of doubt, that's your choice. Um, what I would say is people who do this often try to pose as if they're very thoughtful, and oftentimes they're not. If you want to be seen as an intellectual person, you kind of need to go more along this route. Don't just doubt things because it's cool or edgy or something like that. Do it because you've done the investigation and because you're asking good questions. Yeah. Could, you, could you give an example of lazy doubt? Because I'm still kind of, I don't know, I'm still struggling what that would look like? Um, yeah, I went to high school with this kid, right? And this kid, um, uh, he was just kind of an annoying person. Uh, and he wanted, he, he, wanted, he wanted attention. And so talking to him in private, this kid never walked away from any of the beliefs he ever held. But in public, he wanted to be seen as kind of cool, kind of edgy. And so he uh, kind of, as he was on social media and stuff, he would, he, would, he would play off like, oh, I don't know about these certain things. You know, I'm searching. I'm really, you know, kind of, kind of like trying to find my way, trying to find my beliefs. He wasn't doing any sort of research, you know, anything yeah. like that. He was just like trying to kind of give off this aura of like, oh, I'm kind of an intellectual. So, you know, uh, these things that everyone else believes, I, I'm maybe a little bit too smart, too cool for that. But like he, he, he wasn't really doing any sort of actual searching or research. It was more just kind of like, I want to come across as kind of like a free spirit vibing hippie dude, you know. Um, it's, yeah, it's like a mood, man. So, um, yeah, it, I think I think the difference between these is the heart behind it. I think that honest doubt, again, um, I would, I kind of pride myself in asking a lot of questions. Um, my wife will sometimes be in the car with me and she'll be like, hey, you've not talked in 20 minutes. What are you doing? And what I, I well, I'm kind of embarrassed to say what I'm doing. I, I am, I am thinking about something, right? Um, last time it happened, um, she said, what are you doing? What is on your mind right now? And I said, um, I'm trying to pretend that I'm a Lutheran and I'm critiquing my view of baptism. <laughs> Am I right about baptism? Right? You know, you know, if I look at it from this angle, here's a challenge that I have to deal with. Maybe, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. I need to deal with this. I need to ask questions about this. I need to be curious. I need to be searching. I need to, you know, work through this stuff. Um, you know, I, I don't think that you necessarily need to take it to that extent. But there's a basically there's a good type of doubt and there's a bad type of doubt. The good type of doubt is curiosity and it leads you to search, to research, to find answers to ask good questions. And then there's kind of the lazy, you know, I'm, I'm just doubting. Don't, maybe a good way to say it. Don't doubt just to doubt. Doubt to learn. Okay? 
don't doubt just to doubt. Doubt to learn. If you have a doubt, if you have something that you're wrestling with and struggling through, let it lead you to ask good questions and try to find answers. But don't just doubt to doubt. Doubting to doubt leads you nowhere. Doubt should spark curiosity. It should be a question that causes you to search for answers and search for truth. And so there's a good type of doubt and there's a bad type of doubt. And I would encourage you to be good doubters, right? Be doubters who, who search, who think, who ask questions. All right. I'm still trying to give off a good vibe. Yeah, I mean, you can give off a good vibe, right? But like, you know, sure. I like that word, vibe. You know, I don't know. I'm, do I give off a vibe? I give off a vibe? Good vibe? Right. So vibes in and of themselves are not bad. It's, you know, there are good vibes and there are bad vibes. Okay. <laughs> Mr. Gravit, you give off the vibe of a musty library. I take that as a compliment, I think. Do you know how much time I spend in musty libraries? So it, it just sticks with me. Hipster Hobbit. I don't have the feet for it, but thank you. All right. So, uh, 4.1. I'm going to give you the title. Oh, 4.1. Trinity. We're going to read a lot of Bible on Monday for this one. A lot of Bible. Trinity is made up of what two words? Yeah, try meaning what? Try meaning three. And unity meaning one. Whenever we say God is Trinity, we are saying that God is three. And God is one. No, bad. <laughs> we never start a sentence with those words, Logan. Um, so uh, let me give you just like one quick point and then we'll save the rest for Monday. The Christian religion is unique from other ancient religions because... They be, we believe in one God. How many gods? One. one. Judaism believes in one God. Islam is not technically an ancient religion. It doesn't get started until the 700s. But Islam is also uh, has a belief in one God. And what is it called? If you believe in only one God, it is called what? Monotheism. Monotheism. If you believe in multiple gods, it's called polytheism well theirs isn't trinity uh, both of us confess to believe in the God of Abraham but you know if you ask the question if you have a Jew and a Muslim or a, a Christian and a Muslim in front of each other and you say is Jesus God what is the Muslim going to say 
And what is the Christian going to say? Yes. So, um, to me, the way that I process through that is I believe uh, the one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Islam rejects that concept. So even though we're both saying, both claiming to worship the God of Abraham, uh, the two gods seem to be mutually exclusive, right? Um, some people will try to say, well, their concept of God is like our concept of God the Father. But um, as we're going to see, you can't really separate the Father from the Son or the Spirit. So I would answer that no. And a lot... Uh, I mean, sort of. Um, their stories uh, up to Abraham are very different from ours, though. So, like, um, a lot of them, a lot of them are similar. Islam and, and like our Old Testament at times is similar, but Islam makes the claim that our Old Testament was corrupted and that theirs is the true testament. So, like in the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, whenever you read that in the Quran, um, well, he doesn't actually sacrifice Isaac. But in the Quran, that's not Isaac. Guess who it is? It's Ishmael, right? So it's it's um, there. There are several places in the Quran where there is a similar story to the one in the Bible, but there are very notable changes as well. In the Old Testament, he was. Uh, in in the Old Testament, Ishmael is no longer around for that story. But in the Quran, it's Ishmael that is. Yeah. In the Quran. I'm not sure it mentions it. By the way, the Quran is also like not at all in order. Like, if I remember correctly, the story of Jonah is before the story of Abraham in the Quran. So, and like, it's not claiming that, that those events are in order. But um, if I remember correctly, yeah, it's like, um, do you think? What did it do to Jonah? Was it like a shark? You you can you can read it, man. Um, so I'm. I, I'm hesitant to comment too much on Islam because obviously that's not my area of expertise. Um, I've read most, if not all, of the Quran, um, but I don't. I don't really love going down that road just because that's that's really not an area that I feel like I'm qualified to talk about too much. Um, on Monday, we will start with uh, the text Deuteronomy six four through five. Um, and we'll get into our discussion of the Trinity. Um, your, you will have a study hall tomorrow. In your study hall, um, if you don't feel great about your notes, you should compare with some people. I will probably come around and glance at them quickly. Um, but we should be at a point where I don't have to grade notes too hard. It shouldn't be too time-consuming for me. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that you guys are in a place where you're doing that well at this point. Um, reflection questions will be due on Friday. Tomorrow I will also give you what we'll be going over for the discussion day on Friday. So do we have Trinity tomorrow? Study hall. Trinity is on Monday. Oh, okay. Tuesday. Reflection questions? Yeah, and you can email them to me. You can either send them in email, you can print them off and give them, or you can handwrite them either way. Yeah, so Monday, next week, um, we don't have school, which means that our schedule will be off. And then the 12th through the 16th, I'm going to be in Kansas City. So um, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, uh, there will be other people here filling in for me, and I've told them not to do what's on the syllabus, just to do whatever the heck they want. 
Um, so Jim Wojciech will be here, and then Keith from New Union will be here uh, for one day. Um, Thursday and Friday, you may have someone else. Carter Johnson might be here, but he's not gotten back to me. So I'm not sure if he actually will be or not. Uh, Westminster. So, all right, you guys head on out.